Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. For a generation, some of the money we've spent at the gas station and at the mall has gone to empower the authoritarians and armed groups that have given us our worst foreign-born crises. How can we get ourselves out of business with hostile petrocrats and violent extremists? In his new book, Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World, Leif Wenar says that citizens, consumers, and politicians can together lead a peaceful global resource revolution which will make us more secure at home, more trusted abroad, and better able to solve pressing global problems like climate change. Leif Wenar holds the Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. He earned his degrees in philosophy from Stanford and Harvard. He's been a visiting professor at Princeton and Stanford. This spring, he's William H. Monsall Visiting Professor at Stanford. And Leif Wenar will be in Utah. He'll be giving a talk on Tuesday, January 26th, a week from today, 7 p.m. at Westminster College in Salt Lake City for the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy as a part of the Ambassador John Price and Marsha Price World Affairs Lecture Series. That uh, lecture is free and open to the public. It's in the Vive Gore Concert Hall at Westminster College a week from today. Professor Wenar, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Tom, and thanks to everyone joining us out in your beautiful state. Uh, very interesting uh, topic, and of course, uh, very important. Uh, I wonder if we could start with the resource curse. What What is the resource curse? One way to get a hold of the resource curse and how much trouble it causes to us is to think about something that Dick Cheney once said. You remember former Vice President Dick Cheney? Yes. He once he said, the problem is that the good Lord did not always decide to put oil under democratic countries. Let's imagine if the good Lord had decided to put oil in democracies. I mean, what would our world have looked like then? We wouldn't have seen any ISIS with their atrocities. There would be no Assad with his barrel bombs, no Syrian refugee crisis. We probably wouldn't have had 9-11, no Saddam, no Gaddafi, no Putin going into Ukraine. The Iranians wouldn't have sponsored terrorist groups worldwide, and we wouldn't have seen the Saudis spread an extreme version of Islam worldwide, which we now see mutating into homegrown terrorism in Asia and in Europe and maybe even here. And if you want to go way back, we wouldn't have even have seen the Soviet Union surge ahead of us in the nuclear arms race in the 1970s. So for 40 years, the West's Worst crises and threats have come from countries that have a lot of oil, and that is part of the resource curse. And uh, that's what you concentrate on most, I believe, but there are many other natural resources which have the same attendant problems. And you, you begin your book with the cell phone, or <laughs> the phones we all have in our hands. I wonder if you could connect that up. That's right. I mean, people listening might want to take out their cell phone and look at this miraculous thing that modern technology has given us. But there might be something in your phone that you don't really want. In your phone, in my phone, maybe in your car radio, there might be a piece of metal that was taken out of the Congo. Now, the Congo has hosted one of the worst wars in the world for dozens of years. And it may be that the metal in your phone or your radio was extracted at gunpoint by one of these vicious militias who have been causing all sorts of chaos in the Congo. Deaths in the Congo may have reached Holocaust levels by now, and somehow metal from the Congo has ended up in our tech. The really surprising thing about that story is that you own your phone. I own my phone. I own all the tech. You own your radio. Under the laws of the United States of America, somehow we legally own those little pieces of metal that were extracted by rebels in the Congo and sent over to us. And that is the key to this mystery of the resource curse. The mystery is how are the resources that are stolen over there ending up legally owned by us over here in America. You have a, a very interesting, uh, well, a series of examples, illustrations. I'm, uh, I'm going to quote uh, from an a, a article you did, op-ed piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal. 
and I'll, I'll change the locale with your permission. Um, okay. If an armed gang in Salt Lake City seizes a gas station, Utahns don't have the right to buy gas from the gangsters. That would cause chaos. But when an Islamic State seized Iraq's oil fields, lots of countries start buying oil from them. I think that, that brings it home, doesn't it? It does, and that's why it's so surprising. I mean, in ordinary life, violence violates property rights, but somehow violence overseas when it comes to natural resources ends up in our having property rights here in America. And that's the secret to the resource curse. So here, think about oil, think about those metals. There's a very old and very bad law that's putting us into legal business with these violent and repressive actors abroad. That old bad law basically says whoever can seize resources by force over there can sell them legally to us. Essentially, our law says might makes right. Might there ends up creating legal rights here. And that's that law that puts us into business with bad actors abroad. And you point out this is a, this is a vestige which has remained uh, other resources, other, other elements of our economy. We have said that that shouldn't apply, and, and we've made it so, haven't we? It's true. It's something we don't think about very often. But this rule of might makes right has been overturned many times in history. In fact, overturning that law has been some of the greatest triumphs in human history in the past 300 years. So if you give me a second, I can, I can give you some examples. Yes, of that. I'd love it. Uh, 300 years ago, if you think about it, all of international law was based on this bad old rule of might makes right. So way back then, might makes right was our law, even for human beings. Our law was whoever can seize a person by force can sell them to us. Right? The slave trade was legal, and under that law, 12 million human beings were forced through the gruesome middle passage by the European empires, where those survivors were legally bought by people here. So back then, might made right for people and that's not all. I mean, almost everything in international affairs was governed by that rule. So if one country could capture the territory of another militarily, it got the legal right to rule that territory. Or if one country could gain power over another country's people, it got the right to rule those people as their colony. And even within countries, international law said Whoever could gain the most power could do almost anything they wanted to the people. They could install a racist apartheid government or engage in ethnic cleansing or even commit genocide. All of those things used to be legal under international law because might makes right. But now look, look at how much progress we've made against that bad old rule. All of those things that I just mentioned are now illegal. Slave trade is illegal. Conquest, colonialism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide. We've made all of those instances of might makes right illegal. Might makes right for natural resources is one of the few remaining vestiges of that bad old coercion-based international system. Well, to uh, keep the parallel with the Atlantic slave trade, uh, I just want to quote you here. Um, 200 years ago, the British elite was completely entangled in the slave trade. Rich British merchants owned lots of slave ships, uh, members of parliament, even the Church of England owned slave plantations. It was business as usual. So it was, it was entrenched, right? And, and then you remind us that it was the people. Um, it, it was, you know, from the bottom up, uh, grassroots that, that changed this. They put pressure on the government. It's so true, and that's such an inspiring story. If the people want it to happen, it can happen, and it may seem impossible, but how many impossible political changes have we seen even in our own lifetimes? So way back in London, where I now work, way back in 1787, 12 Quakers got together in a room and made a totally preposterous oath to each other that they were going to end the Atlantic slave trade. 
And that was absolutely preposterous, because as you say, the British elite were heavily engaged in this trade, and it was a big part of the economy. So the slave trade gave Britain its first millionaire, and Barclays and Lords were making a lot of money lending, uh, lending out to slave ships, owners. Almost everyone in the elite had something to do with the slave trade, but the people just decided that this horrible trade must end, and for years they petitioned and they marched and they elected and they insisted that the British get out of this terrible business. It actually took them 60 years, and they bore a lot of costs. Let me just give you two figures for how expensive it was for the British to end their slave trade. In one year, the British government spent 40% of its budget on ending the slave trade. And if you look at the total cost, the British gave up 2% of their GDP every year for 60 years. Now, Tom, can you imagine a politician today standing up and saying, my proposal is going to cost us 2% of GDP every year for 60 years? That would be a brave politician. But the British people insisted that this happened. And you know what? It was worth it to end that terrible trade. They got on the right side of history, and that's the kind of thing we can do to get on the right side of history now with natural resources. I was going to ask you about the cost, because uh, it, <laughs> costs involved, and, and, and throughout history, unfortunately, uh, moral rights versus economics, economics is often won. Uh, to, to bring the parallel forward. What, what would it cost, say, the U.S. to, to make a switch? Yeah. The economic costs would be reasonable. The real tough part of switching away from blood oil is the politics. So the economic costs are going to be pretty low because of all of our new energy resources. It would be fairly quick and easy for the U.S. to get off of authoritarian oil, just not to buy it from the authoritarians and the armed groups anymore. U.S. could do it. North America can do it fairly easily. Europe would have a little bit more problems since they're so dependent on Russian gas and oil. But even then, it would take a few years and have moderate, uh, reasonable costs. The real problems are going to be the politics. Telling our old allies, the Saudis, for example, that you know who rules in your country is none of our business, but Right now, we just don't think you qualify for any of our business. We're not going to buy oil from you uh, until you get the basic civil liberties and political rights in your country sorted out, and then we can go ahead and do business with you again. Hmm. Now, wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't making a stand like that, uh, I guess, a, a, across a broad range of you know, authoritarian regimes and the, and the like, uh, that's likely to lead to some conflict. They're not going to let their business go without a fight, are they? Yeah. You know, Tom, this is a, such an interesting part of the story. My sincere view is that change is going to come to the Middle East in particular. You can see it uh, happening now. We saw a bit of it with the Arab Spring. The people are going to get power in these countries one way or another. And it can happen the easier way or the harder way, or let's put it this way, it can happen the harder way or the much, much harder way. The much, much harder way is for us to continue our business as usual and to continue sending billions of dollars every year under this rule that says we'll send all of our money essentially to whoever has the most guns. We could continue to fund repression and conflict in the Middle East until there is really a big explosion. That's the hard way. The, that's a very hard way. The slightly less hard way is for us to take a stand on our own principle now and to say that under our own principles, we believe that all countries belong to their people. Something Abraham Lincoln said in his first inaugural, a country belongs to its people. Well, if we really believe that a country belongs to its people, then the oil belongs to its people, and we shouldn't be buying the oil unless the people could possibly be agreeing to their property being sold off. 
we can stand, take a stand on our principle and get on the side of the people as they gain power. They're going to gain power one way or another. We should get on their side before they do. Let's take a break uh, when we come back more. The book is Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. We're talking with Professor Leif Wenar. He holds the Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London, and he is coming to Utah. He'll give a lecture on Tuesday, January 26th. That's a week from today, 7 p.m. Uh, in the Vivgor Concert Hall on the Westminster College campus in Salt Lake City, 7 p.m., this is presented by the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy as part of the Ambassador John Price and Marsha Price World Affairs Lecture Series. The book is out from Oxford University Press. And we're opening the phone lines. If you'd like to comment or ask a question of Professor Wenar, the number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can get to us through email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. I'm Robin Young. Five years into Syria's civil war, tens of thousands of Syrians are living in limbo in Jordan's Zatari refugee camp. No end in sight. Some people are going back to Syria because they're a little bit desperate with the life here, and they think that being home, even with the war, it's easier than being here, you know, doing nothing. Next time, here and now. Join us Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort, an all-suite spa and fitness resort in St. George, offering an on-site restaurant, six pools, and 14 tennis courts. Details at greenvalleyspa.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Professor Leif Wenar who holds the Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College, London. He's coming to Utah. He'll give a lecture on January 26, 7 p.m. That is a Tuesday. In fact, it's a week from today at Westminster College in the Vivgor Concert Hall there, 7 p.m. As I mentioned, it's uh, part of the Ambassador John Price and Marsha Price World Affairs Lecture Series for the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. And Leif Wenar says that uh, we have overcome... This, what should be an archaic old rule, might makes right for, say, the slave trade and apartheid and, uh, and other evils. And he's saying we uh, need to, as citizens, uh, start applying pressure and overcome this with regard to natural resources, especially oil. And uh, you're welcome to join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Professor Wenner, one of one of your uh, points here is that not only should we not be supporting uh, with our money through oil purchases authoritarian regimes and uh, uh, you know groups like ISIS, we should be also be supporting, and these two go together, um, the the principle that the people own the natural resources. That's right. That's so important. So you started out asking me about the resource curse. And sometimes people ask me, well, if you know, there's lots of countries with oil, and only some of them cause trouble, right? So, for example, Norway doesn't cause us any trouble, and it doesn't have the resource curse. It's not authoritarian. It never had a civil war. And so why is it that Norway does so well with its oil? And the key fact here about which countries have done well with their oil is were the people in control of their government when the oil money came in. So when Norway's oil money came in, the people were in control. The government was accountable to the people. And so the people could insist that the government use the oil money for the people's good instead of for coercion and violence and payoffs. And that's why Norway has thrived with its oil, while all these other countries have such trouble. In these other countries, where the oil money came in while there was a strong man in power, or in the midst of a civil war, that's when the oil really causes trouble, because it's not accountable to the people. We already believe that the people own their country. We already believe that all governments should be accountable to their people. So the proposal here is that we just take a stand on our own principle 
and say that we're not going to buy oil or other resources unless we can be sure that the people have at least minimal accountability over what's happening with the resources of their country. Uh, you point out that uh, the vast majority of countries, including the U.S., China, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, and Russia, have ratified one of two major global human rights treaties, both of which declare, quote, all peoples may, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources, end quote. Uh, that's very easily demonstrated, straightably um, not sufficient. <laughs> what, what do we need to do to, to take this yeah. first step? It's so interesting, because that principle that you just read out, it really is an American principle. It's not a partisan principle. So let me, let me just quote you a couple of people saying that, that, that people own the oil. One of them is uh, Democratic Senator Bob Graham, who said, look, it's a fundamental fact that the oil and gas off of our shores is an American resource. It belongs to the people of the United States of America. Right? The oil belongs to the people. That was a Democrat. And then you remember George W. Bush when he was uh, in office in 2006. He just said Iraq's oil belongs to the Iraqi people. It's their asset. This really is a deep American principle. It's bipartisan. And the really fortunate thing about our point in history is that almost every country in the world has signed up to this principle, at least on paper. The whole world says natural resources start out in the people's hands. It's the birthright of the people. Now, if the resources belong to the people, well, the people can allow their government to do anything with those resources afterwards. So here in America, uh, we privatize a lot of our resources. We have auctions for our oil and gas. The money goes into the national treasury. And those are laws passed by an accountable uh, government, which, which makes it uh, fine. The people have approved those laws. So privatize, nationalize, leave it in the ground. The people can approve any laws that they want for their resources. But we've got to insist on this principle, that the resources start off in the people's hands and that we're not going to buy them unless we can make sure that the people could possibly be finding out what's happening with their resources. And if a majority doesn't like what the government's doing with them, the government's policy will change. And that potentially is down the road. What's a starting point? Uh, you, you, I think you, in this Wall Street Journal article, you say, for one example, we could use Freedom House's list of countries rated not free, and we could pass a law saying we're, we're not going to buy oil from those countries. That's right. So there's a lot of scales out there which measure civil liberties and political rights. And these scales tell us, uh, you know, what are the countries where the people could possibly be holding their governments accountable for resources? And if you look at these scales like Freedom House and you look at the countries where the people could not possibly be controlling their resources, you find a lot of big oil countries. So you'll find Russia and almost all the countries in the Middle East and the big producers in Central Asia and also in Africa. And that's it's over 50 percent of the world's traded oil and over 50 percent of the world's oil reserves are right now being controlled by regimes who could not possibly be accountable to the people. And so by our own principle, by that principle of, of Lincoln, uh, that is literally stolen oil. Right mm-hmm. now, half the world's stolen, uh, traded oil is literally stolen, and we shouldn't buy stolen goods. I want to explore just a little bit uh, some consequences of such it. I think a lot of us would agree, yes, that's on moral principle. We ought, we ought to be doing these things. I'm thinking of, say you say, okay, Saudi Arabia, longtime ally of the U.S., no longer yeah. going to purchase oil from you. You'd probably have to think about not doing it just on counterbalancing with Iran, right? There's geopolitics here, and you'd have to take that into account, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And like I said, that's the... That's the challenging part. The economics is feasible. It's the geopolitics that are tricky. And I don't want to make any any apologies for that. It really is going to be challenging to sort out the world so that we're no longer legally in business with these people just because they maintain coercive control over their countries. We really are going to have to make a gradual, peaceful, and responsible transition to a better energy system. 
And let me just say, it's the key is to take a principled stand. You really have to stand up for this principle that's a deep part of our own beliefs and that the world claims that they believe too. People own their resources. And, and why is a principled stand so important? Well, I'll, I'll tell you something, Tom. I, I travel all over the world, and, and you probably do too. And, and when you and I go out, there's one disturbing thing that we find in a lot of foreign countries. And that's that while people in foreign countries love Americans, they just don't trust our government. They deeply distrust the American government. And a lot of that is because they think that we say one thing and we do another. You know, we say we're for peace and we do these invasions. We say we're for democracy, but we, we support these dictators. What better way to gain the trust of these foreigners than for us to stand up for the deepest principle of our political morality and say, we believe that all countries belong to the people. We are now on the side of you, the people, and no longer in business with those who are oppressing and attacking you. If you just joined us on Access Utah, we're talking with Professor Leif Wenar. He is a chair of philosophy and law at King's College London. And he's coming to Utah. His uh, talk is Tuesday, January 26th on the Westminster campus, Westminster College campus in Salt Lake City, 7 p.m. And that's presented by the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. It's part of the Ambassador John Price and Marsh Price World Affairs Lecture Series. His book, just out from Oxford University Press, is Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. I want to loop back and maybe just parenthetically here, uh, follow up, Professor Winaran, it sounds like you're hopeful that that which was begun, and we, I think we all got our hopes up with the Arab Spring, you, you think that that will be completed at some time by hook or by crook, right? Uh, more painfully or less painfully, you're, you're, you're hopeful that that will happen. That's right. I mean, I, I, I think we've, we really have to hope that it happens because, I mean, go back to that list of problems that we started with. Look at all the trouble that oil has been causing us for the last uh, 40 years, you know, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Gaddafi, and Putin, and so on, even the Soviets. We've got to hope that we can get over this. And actually, the more I study these issues, the more hopeful I am that we really can do something about it. I know people listening will think that this is pretty ambitious stuff, and you know what? It is. But let me ask you again, how many impossible changes have you seen in politics in your own lifetime? Maybe you're old enough to remember the fall of the Soviet Union and what a surprise that was. The end of apartheid, the election of the first African-American president. Who of us thought that those things could happen in our lifetime? Change seems impossible until it comes. And let me just say again, we've won all of these inspiring victories over that bad old law of might makes right end of the slave trade. That was an amazing victory. Or let me ask, if, if you can just imagine uh, 80 years ago being an idealistic young reformer in Europe and going into the cold halls in London or Paris or Amsterdam and telling a member of the establishment that, you know, colonialism, that empires really must end because it's not right, causing a tremendous amount of trouble. Can you imagine what those members of the establishment would have told you it's simply not possible, they would have said, that we could disentangle ourselves from our empires. We simply can't do it. But they did it, and they were forced to do it in that case, and it was a long and protracted, painful struggle. We don't have to go through that struggle with resources. We really can make this transition easier by standing up for our own principles and consciously, willingly, abolishingly, abolishing might makes right and saying that the resources belong to the people. We are talking with uh, Leif Wenar. His uh, book is Blood Oil. You're welcome to join us at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com. And Glenn has emailed us. Uh, Glenn says, such a great topic, very close to my heart in so many ways and on so many levels. This argument parallels the blood diamond situation. This tends to make me think that we're dealing with a human nature problem. Humans tend to act like the oligarchs of the diamond industry and the oil industry because of human nature. I'm not trying to excuse that, though. 
I've surmised that our foreign aid program here in the U.S. is as big a problem as the fact that we are uh, uh, supporting despotic regimes through our consumerism. I really like the idea that we should end or curtail both trade and aid to countries which are not free. I would use the Bill of Rights as the litmus test. He goes on to say, Glenn does, I was raised in the Uinta Basin in eastern Utah. I have worked in the oil field here for nearly 22 years. I really was left with little choice of occupation due to the lack of opportunity. I have, however, been a champion of alternative energy. My beliefs are really not popular with my peers, so I generally keep them to myself. Alternative energy was the primary reason that I went to college. I wanted to become an engineer but fell in love with history and math. My study of history is why I believe the human nature element so strongly. We're fundamentally no different than the Neanderthals, except for our ability to uh, turn thermal energy into work. It's hard truth, I know. That's what uh, Glenn says. He's Ismaldus. Thank you, Glenn. So, Professor Wendar, first of all, this this argument on uh, on human nature. What do you think? You know, Glenn, thank you so much for that, and thank you so much for that story. And I can tell that, like me, you are something of a philosopher. So, let me just say, in addition to all of the material on oil in this book, Blood Oil, you will find some serious philosophy about human nature, which my publishers allowed me to sneak in in the final chapter. I actually think that your story about blood diamonds is one of the more inspiring ones, and it actually gives us hope that we can do something about oil. So some of you might have seen that old uh, DiCaprio movie called Blood Diamond, And that was a fictional representation of real events in Sierra Leone, where there's a terrible, terrible civil war for many years, and these gruesome uh, militias, a lot of uh, a lot of child soldiers hyped up on drugs. They were amputating uh, villagers' arms and so on, just to scare them away from the diamond fields. And these militias, these terrible militias, were gathering the diamonds and selling them under the rule of might makes right to international companies, and those diamonds ended up in our earrings and wedding rings, and a lot of people still wear blood diamonds on them uh, as symbols of love. That was a terrible trade that we were involved in back then. But the inspiring part is that skilled up, smart people came up with a scheme to fight blood diamonds, saying that we wouldn't buy them from the rebels anymore. Now, At first, that scheme got nowhere. I mean, these were idealistic reformers, and Sierra Leone was a long way away, and we had a lot of other things to think about, so their plan got nowhere for about five years. But then their moment of opportunity came, the window opened, and it turned out that the diamonds that these terrible militias in Sierra Leone were harvesting by force ended up in the possession of al-Qaeda, right before 9-11, because al-Qaeda knew that after 9-11, their bank accounts would be frozen, and they needed some way to store up value. They needed a store of money because their bank accounts would be frozen, so they bought these blood diamonds. And then, after 9-11, blood diamonds became a top national security priority for the United States of America. Eighteen months later, the U.S. passed the Clean Diamond Act, which bans all imports of blood diamonds. And you know what? The rest of the world followed us, too. In the last scene of that DiCaprio movie, you see the big convention in Kimberley, South Africa, which started this worldwide ban on blood diamonds. We've done it for blood diamonds. We've gotten out of the rule of might makes right. We should expand that ban to blood oil, too. Professor Winner, I wanted to uh, ask you something, uh, jumping off from the second part of Glenn's uh, email. Uh, He talks about alternative energy. And I wonder if we cross off the list, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes and the like, would that not put more pressure on, say, domestic oil? Uh, And wouldn't that be in opposition to environmental principles and, uh, you know, um, I guess we'd have to ramp up alternative energy maybe faster than perhaps we were planned to, to fit in here. I wonder how, if you could uh, talk about those, what might be opposing principles there. Yeah, we really do need to put into place uh, authoritarians to alternatives plan. So think about it, Tom. I mean, think about the two big stories from Paris 
that you were talking about this past fall. One of them was the big climate change conference where all these countries got together to make an agreement on climate. But the other was those terrible terrorist attacks which claimed so many lives in Paris. We've got to do both things at once. We've got to get off blood oil, and we've got to start decarbonizing uh, the energy supply. We've got to do both of these things at once. It is going to be challenging. But one great way to decarbonize the energy supply is to stop buying blood oil. We can make the transition for both things at once. What a great stimulus for people who are interested in developing alternative forms of energy than to think, well, look, actually right now, a huge portion of the world's oil really shouldn't be legally available to be bought by us because it's literally stolen from the people of their countries. That's a great stimulus to start developing alternative energies. We can do both things at once. These two campaigns should go together. Let's take another break. When we come back, our final segment with Leif Winnar. He is a professor. He holds the Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. Uh, His book out from Oxford Oxford University Press, I'll get there, uh, is called Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. And he's coming to Utah a week from today, Tuesday, January 26th, at Westminster College, 7 p.m. He'll be giving a lecture there. More following the break. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. Long before television and movies, performing artists traveled to their audiences. Competing circuits were organized as railroads connected communities, and vaudeville, a name derived from a French phrase meaning worthy of the city's patronage, became popular. Towns like Logan, Utah, far from major cities but with access to railroads, benefited from this arrangement and hosted famous performers such as John Philip Sousa, Abbott and Costello, the Marx Brothers, George Burns and Gracie Allen. When the Thatcher Opera House burned down in Cache Valley in 1912, another theater, The Lyric, was up and running within a year. Why? Probably to keep the routing. Performers still tour the country today. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, featuring a full season of touring, performing artists. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Professor Leif Wenner. He is a Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. His book, out from Oxford University Press, is Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. He's coming to Utah. Uh, his presentation uh, is next Tuesday, Tuesday, January 26, 7 p.m., on the Westminster College campus. It'll be in the Vive Gore Concert Hall, 7 p.m., as I said, for the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy as part of the Ambassador John Price and Marsha Price World Affairs Lecture Series, and that lecture is free and open to the public. Professor Wenner, uh, you pose a very good question in your Wall Street Journal article. I'll pose it to you. You, you say, is it f- uh, you're arguing, of course, for us, uh, the U.S. and other countries, um, putting into law the principle that we will not purchase stolen oil, will not purchase blood oil or other natural resources. And you say, is fair to ask how far such principle could go? Could we still buy, say, dishwashers from one-party China? What do you say? Yeah, we can. This is a particular problem around natural resources, and the solution is around natural resources, too. Let me just say, this is this problem is something that we and the Chinese face in common. Think back, if you were listening back at the beginning, to all the problems that have come to us from oil-producing countries. All of this terrorism and instability, civil wars, refugee crises, that set of problems comes because we say might makes right for oil. And the Chinese face that same problem, and in fact, maybe even more so. The U.S. National Intelligence Council says that in the next 15 years, the major oil-producing areas of the world are just the ones that are going to get hotter and more crowded and hungrier and thirstier, and that means they're likely to be even more unstable than we've seen them in our lifetimes. So here we all share this common problem. How are we going to get the energy that we need 
the United States, because of the new technology, actually has almost all the energy it needs now. We don't need authoritarian oil anymore. The Chinese now face a choice. Do they want to become entirely dependent for their imported energy on this increasingly unstable arc of oil that runs from Russia through the Middle East into Africa? The Chinese should also announce that they will no longer, at some date in the future, buy stolen oil. And that should be enough to bring transformational change in a lot of these countries and get more power to the people, get governments there that really are accountable to the people for resource decisions. Here's an email from Kevin. By the way, you're... uh encouraged. Welcome to email us to upraxcess at gmail.com or to call us. Our toll-free number is 1-800-826-1495. Here's Kevin's email. He says, examples of abject, undeniable hypocrisy resulting from our energy policies. One, coup in Egypt, followed by not one word of protest from the USA. Also, USA violates its own law prohibiting aid to nations where a coup occurs. Two, USA approves Turkey immediately destroying a Russian jet, allegedly Uh, violating Turkish air border. U.S. Congressperson stating that Iran enforcing its territorial water uh, border is an act of war against the USA. Three, USA invades a sovereign uh, Syria without provocation, without declaration of war, a nation of absolutely no known interest to the USA against UN rules. USA declares Russia protecting Russian race uh, persons in Ukraine is a war crime. That's uh, Kevin's examples of abject and undeniable hypocrisy resulting from our energy policies. Professor Winter, what, what do you think? Kevin, you know, I really understand where you're coming from. And the kinds of things that you're saying, I know a lot of people will agree with you. And actually, I know a lot of people will have different views. The foreign policy choices that we've made as Americans over the past 40 years have been incredibly divisive. And so let me just mention some more choices to add to your list. Should we have invaded Iraq to take out Saddam? Should we have invaded Libya to take out Gaddafi? Should we have invaded Syria, which we didn't do? Should we have lifted sanctions on Iran? Now, as I ask those questions, I can hear people at home or in their cars shouting out yes or no, right? These have been some of our most terrible and most divisive debates as Americans. And I can tell you, living in London now and looking looking overseas back in my home country, it just breaks my heart how divided good people have been because of our foreign policy choices. Let me just say, this book is not about the choices that we've made which divide us so. It's about the choices that we have. All of these oil-producing countries are just giving us over and over again impossible, no-win foreign policy choices. And because the dilemmas are so extreme, even Americans of goodwill who want to get along are divided irreconcilably about which of the terrible options we should take. So in addition to being the right thing to do and making us more secure, Acting on our own principles when it comes to oil can detox our own politics and make the country's politics more united again. So we're, we're reaching uh, near the end of our time here. I want to ask what ordinary citizens can do to, to affect a change. If, uh, you know, if they agree with you here, what, what can a citizen do? That's a great question. I'm really happy to say that by the time I get to Utah, the Clean Trade website will have been launched. And on that website, you'll see lots of things that we can do as citizens and as consumers to get us out of business with the men of blood abroad. One of the main things that citizens can do is to sign this declaration of principles to send to our politicians in Washington. I've written it over a number of years with a team of international lawyers. It really sets out in precise terms how we can replace the rule of might makes right with this Lincoln's principle that the country belongs to its people. After we convince our own government, we really do have to convince our trade partners to get out of business with these uh, authoritarians and armed groups too. And the main pressure we want to put there is on the Chinese. So there's all sorts of uh, boycotts of Chinese uh, goods that you can engage in. For example, something we call the toycott, 
Uh, you might not think of it, but toys being plastic are almost entirely made with oil, and that's probably stolen oil. We shouldn't let our children play with stolen oil. Uh, there's there's a lot of things we can do to encourage our Chinese friends also to end the business of blood oil. And on the website, you'll even find an index which tells you which oil companies are today doing more business with authoritarian regimes. So if you're deciding whether, where to fill up your gas tank or even which companies to invest in, you can use that index to send a signal to the companies that you don't want us to be in business with some of the worst actors in the world that are causing us so much trouble. What uh, Do you have the the, uh, the website, the address we could go to? What? Yeah, I'll, it'll be launched by the time I get to Salt Lake City, which I'm so much looking forward to, and it is cleantrade.org. Okay, we'll put that on our website with with the caveat, I guess, that it's not quite up yet, but it will be soon. It will be soon. Uh, tell me again. I was typing here. <laughs> Sorry, the 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 address. It's just cleantrade.org. Cleantrade.org. Great. Uh, All one word. Finally, just a minute left. What uh, what do you what do you most hope people get out of the book, Blood Oil? A sense of hope. I've got to say, this, these issues are so very depressing and divisive. The injustice and misery caused by natural resources and oil is sometimes just overwhelming. And I have to tell you, there's some pretty scary stories in the book, which I just cringe to read even now. But the history of human progress against this bad old rule of might makes right is so inspiring. We really have done it for slave trade, colonial rule, apartheid. We can do it again. We can do this if we really want to do it. And for the sake of both justice and our own security, we really have to get started doing it now. And uh, some of these things just really bring it home. I think toys, if we think about toys being involved in this, that <laughs> that's really impactful. Yeah, it's, you don't think about it, but almost everything we buy is either transported with oil or made from oil. It's everything from bath products to lipsticks, things you smear on your face and your body, golf balls. Oil is everywhere. And that means that every time we go to the pump or even to the checkout line to buy ordinary goods, we're sending back some of our money to people who think of themselves as our enemies and to people who are spreading ideologies that are hostile to our way of life. That's the big problem that we have to get on to. Well, the book is Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. The author is Leif Wenar, who is Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London, and he'll be in Utah. He's coming to Utah next Tuesday, Tuesday, January 26th. He'll be on the Westminster College in the Viv Gore Concert Hall, 7 p.m. That lecture is free and open to the public. It is presented by the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy as part of the Ambassador John Price and Marsha Price World Affairs Lecture Series. Leif Wenar, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. Recently, I boasted to my sister on the phone that my wife was baking me a cake from scratch. Jen was impressed because she knows that Barb is not one to spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Barb cooked up a special three-layer chocolate cake for me instead of buying one in the store like we usually do, in part because this was going to be one of my last birthdays. I just turned 59. As my sister challenged my story, I discovered that she believes that if you buy cakes in a box, it's not baking them from scratch. This baffles me. We didn't buy the cake fully made inside the box. It was just powder. And I think we had to buy other ingredients like eggs and oregano and balsa wood and canned icing to put it together. Barb had to follow instructions and mix them in a bowl. If that's not from scratch, then what is? If you were to truly bake something from scratch, would you have to go find a cocoa tree and grind up the roots in a stone bowl with a rock? Did my sister really expect us to find icing extract from Finland or South Carolina? I don't even know where icing grows in its natural state, probably Disneyland. I I don't begrudge my wife even a little for her approach. The cake she made, even though it had a slightly irregular shape to it, was by far tastier than the kind we usually buy in a store. It was delicious. My wife invented a cake-baking technique under pressure the night before my daughter's wedding. 
She had been working for hours on an elaborate cake when it suddenly began sliding in different directions, just like family members do when they're asked to pose for wedding photos. She discovered that by adopting an angry, crazed tone, talking to the cake, and using some MacGyver-like techniques, she could save the day. She seized and froze the wayward pieces. Later, she covered them in frosting and forcefully jammed them back into the cake, topping the creation with smooth icing. As she put it, frosting covers a multitude of things, and it tastes good, too. I know how to bake things, too, and I do it way faster than your average sleepy cook. I suppose I should admit that things don't always go as planned, and there's usually some smoke involved. My children will gladly tell you about one time, just one time, when I accidentally cooked a frozen corn dog seven minutes instead of 70 seconds. It wasn't a big deal. I put the cooking mitts on and took it outside. If the fire trucks hadn't arrived just as my wife got home, it would have been a forgotten thing. The smoke part of my cooking is sort of a pattern because when I cook things in a frying pan, I cook them on fast instead of slow, and that just means that we have to open the windows when I'm done. I'm also good at heating up frozen meals that have simple one-step directions. I know the picture on the box never resembles actual food, and it's not supposed to. It's to give you an image to keep in your mind while you eat the heated substance in the box. That's an important nuance that many experienced cooks can't grasp. The imagine-what-this-food-could-taste-like principle of microwave cooking. Most people have forgotten that I once took first place in the Golden Noodle Cook-Off Contest. It was a church-sponsored competition back in the days when it wasn't politically incorrect to admit that most men don't cook as well as most women. For safety purposes, women were allowed to help the cooks as long as the coaches didn't actually touch the ingredients. I have a mother-in-law who is an amazing cook. Her food is so good that it can make you cry with joy. Have you ever heard of those swanky, upscale restaurants that are so nice that they don't even have a drive through window? Our cooking is way better than the food you get at one of those fancy pants places. Why do they always ask you if you have reservations about the food before they seat you? She stood next to me and gave me very specific directions from beginning to end, and I created a lasagna dish that stunned and amazed the judges. I got a trophy, which is a giant gold spray-painted noodle mounted on a wooden platform. I think that makes me an award-winning cook. And if I had gone out to a noodle farm in Brazil and mined all the raw ingredients, which I believe actually did include green flakes of basil wood, I would have been an award-winning scratch cook, and that would have impressed my sister. Writing this commentary is making me hungry. Barbara's traveling. I think I'll go cook up something sweet and tasty. I better go open the windows first. This is Steve Eaton. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 